Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 23rd July with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Daniel Berchi, Food and Agriculture Sector Lead at Qantas. We talked about climate positive food, regenerative agriculture, and discussed what these and other buzz phrases mean in practice and how to avoid the dangers of focusing on language rather than the hard work required as the agriculture sector and all parts of the economy start to properly decarbonise and move towards net zero. Highlights from our conversation are coming up a little later. First, some sustainable business news. No sooner had the EU announced its ambitious climate plan, set to transform every corner of its economy, than the arguments over its implementation and the details involved began in earnest. The proposals involve every sector moving away from fossil fuels in order to cut pollution by 55% from a 1990 base level by 2030. Among the measures are that new combustion engine cars will be banned by 2035. There would be financial incentives and sanctions to encourage green housing. The aviation sector would be forced into reducing emissions and the transport and heating sectors would be brought into voluntary carbon markets. It is these carbon market additions that are proving to be most controversial, with a number of EU member governments reported to be unhappy, including Hungary, the Netherlands and most notably France. The French government are reported to have been lobbying for a watering down of the new carbon market, with an apparent goal of raising enough support to scrap the proposals or amend them so that there is increased financial compensation for those impacted by any initial surge in prices. Carbon markets can of course steer economies away from fossil fuels, but the concern here is that increased costs will just get passed on to consumers. The French government took a lot of flack for its 2018 plan to raise fossil fuel taxes, which of course resulted in the widespread so-called gilets jaunes protests. The science-based targets initiative now covers 20% of the global economy and has become in many respects the de facto standard for companies wanting to set credible targets. When established in 2015, the initiative encouraged corporate targets that were in line with the Paris Agreement's 2 Celsius trajectory. However, given the shift in acceptance that a 1.5 Celsius trajectory is what's necessary, the initiative is updating its target validation criteria to be in line with this more ambitious goal. More than 600 companies have already committed to 1.5 Celsius aligned targets, representing $13 trillion in market capitalization, the SBTI says. All companies now submitting targets will have to align with the new tighter criteria. The debate about commodity supply chains and companies using certification as a cover for less acceptable practices has, of course, been around for some time, and certification schemes have come under activist fire amid accusations of being too lenient. This, then, is the context of the Forest Stewardship Council's parting with palm oil business Corindo due to a number of rule violations in eastern Papua, Indonesia. Among these were a failure to consult with local communities about land conversion, including 30,000 hectares of forest containing areas with high conservation value. Papua contains the largest standing rainforest in Indonesia. FSC is severing its links with Corindo because it and the company failed to come to an agreement about how future compliance with FSC rules would be verified. However, both sides seem to be keen to re-establish links once Corindo has made progress in meeting agreed targets. Greenland has, for the best part of a decade, been considering whether or not to expand natural resource exploration, in part to develop sufficient resources for full independence from Denmark. The territory's government has also put climate change at the heart of its legislative agenda, so it's not a huge surprise that all fossil fuel exploration plans have now been dropped. Development of mineral extraction for copper, gold, diamonds, iron and rare earth metals seems set to continue. Evidence of climate change impacts are clear to Greenlanders, with alarming rates of glacier retreat evident, for example. And when announcing the cancellation of all oil and gas extraction plans, the Nuuk-based government described developing fossil fuel projects as coming at too high a price. Danish economic support for Greenland remains at around $600 million every year. 
the Innovation Forum team is working on our Autumn Conference programme. On the 27th to 29th September, it's the Future of Climate Action US event, focusing on how to tackle greenhouse gases in supply chains. Already signed up as speakers and panellists are senior representatives from Kellogg, Alaska Airlines, AB InBev, PepsiCo, Oxfam America and more. And this year's Future of Plastics event will be held from 11th to 13th of October. We'll have three days of frank and open debate with leading brands about how to reach stretching targets. Panellists from Unilever, Iceland, Coca-Cola European Partners, The Body Shop and Equiver are among the experts already confirmed. If you'd like to attend, you can save £225 on passes if you're quick and book before the 23rd of July. And save the date for Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will be held this year from 30th of November to 2nd December. Full details are being released over the coming weeks, but we're looking forward to once again bringing together all the relevant people to ensure we have three days of robust debate and discussion. Earlier this week, I caught up with Daniel Bayacci, Food and Agriculture Sector Lead at Qantas. We talked about the development of climate positive food, what the term actually means and why companies should adopt this approach as part of their decarbonisation strategy. So we're going to be reflecting on some of the issues raised at the recent Future of Food conference series. Something, Daniel, that kept coming up over the course of the event was the concept of climate positive food. So what does climate positive food mean as far as you're concerned? That's an interesting term because there is, in fact, no climate positive food because food production has always an impact on climate. But I think it's more about how can we reduce the impact of the food production on the climate? Food production accounts for 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, it's very important to understand the sector and then really to understand where we can reduce emissions and how we can avoid emissions. But I think it's just to be clear that without compensation, there is no climate positive food. And I think it's important that people understand, well, basically, we have to look at the whole system and not just at some elements, but it's, it takes a whole system approach. And that makes it difficult. So companies that want to reduce climate positive food, they have a lot of challenges to make it happen. And therefore, they need to really analyze in detail where the emissions happen. Okay, so I mean, obviously, 25% of greenhouse gas emissions from the sector. Is that really what makes a move to more climate positive food now? It's essential right now, isn't it? I think people understand that, well, it's, it's quite critical because we see a global warming. We see, for example, the floodings in, in Germany and in Belgium. We see a climate change happening everywhere, more or less. And people are more aware of the impact of food production on climate. I think it's kind of an issue that we can't wait to re be resolved by someone, but we have to do it ourselves. Because nature can do something, but we have also to help nature to do it better. And we, as humans, we understand that it's time to act now because if our children and grandchildren want to have a good life on this planet Earth, we need to reduce emissions as much as possible or we need to improve soil so that soil can sequester carbon more and more. Sure, it does feel like we're seeing significant impacts of climate change playing out in real time right now with the impact of the horrendous heat they're having in northwestern North America and also, as you say, the flooding events we've seen, horrendous flooding events we've seen in, in Germany and, and Belgium. What are then some of the practical steps that the food sector can take to become more climate positive? 
I think it's important that the food sector understands everything is related. We can't just work on isolated sectors on silos. We have to collaborate better across these borders. I think it's about understanding how we can support farmers to improve their production, to reduce emissions at their level, but then in the whole process, how we can reduce emissions by transportation. So we have more locally sourced ingredients, for example, to reduce uh, processing so that we use less energy. And then, of course, also to help consumers to make better decisions and to reduce food waste at the end. I think it's important that we understand it has to take everybody in the system, uh, not only the food processor or the producer, but also the farmer, the consumer, and in fact, also the input producers. So if we can understand the whole system and if a company is able to understand where are the hotspots in the system, then they are able to react on that and to find solutions. And it's not important to have all detailed states available. It's important to start somewhere where we have a certain understanding. Yes, there we have an emission uh, and we can reduce, we can improve. And then based on that, just to continue. So it's a step-by-step -step approach. And it's not a revolution, but an evolution. I think it's important that, well, we can't change it in one day. It takes one generation to fix the system. But if we don't start now, it can be too late. What are the potential impacts then of some of the things you mentioned, the impacts of these practical steps that companies can take? If companies try to diversify their products, they also need to find different sources of ingredients, of raw material, and they have to find new suppliers, other suppliers, better suppliers that have a lower carbon footprint. They also have maybe to change the receipts for the products. They have to do less processing. And of course, also try to avoid transportation so that you don't just harvest potatoes in the Netherlands, you ship them to Italy to wash them, to package them, and then send it back to Germany to sell it. So they have closer circle, more local production. That are the main challenges, I guess, but there is a lot of potential. But the biggest impact is really on the farm level. So companies need to understand what is the situation of the farms where they source material, raw material from, and what are the hotspots on the farm level. So for example, if they can reduce or help farmers to reduce use of fertilizer, of nitrogen fertilizer, for example, that's a major step forward because most of the emissions in the food sector, that's at the farm level and not at the production side or at distribution level. So to focus on the farm level is key to really advance in that sector. So you talked about the sort of things that companies can do. They can think about changing their suppliers. When you're working with companies in the agriculture sector, at what point do you advise them to think about getting new suppliers? And at what point would you advise them to think about working with existing suppliers you know, to leverage existing relationships, perhaps, to improve practices and thinking more on terms of the kind of climate positive aspects that we've been discussing? I mean, usually we try to help them to improve in their existing supply chain, also to see how they can support their farmers. It doesn't always need to be a certification like organic. It always is more important to focus on certain practices. So, for example, in cocoa production, it's important to shift to agroforestry, for example. And of course, that takes time, but to work with existing producers to help them to improve has a long-lasting impact. And just to change the supply often is a bit, uh, you have quick wins. It doesn't really resolve the issue. It's just kind of, we shift from one area to the other, but it doesn't mean that 
the old area will be improved. So I think it's much better to work with suppliers. And we have companies that really have long-term goals, 2030, and they start with agroforestry, they support farmers. That's a long-lasting impact. And of course, if you talk about fairness, I think it's a better approach to work with existing suppliers. It's often the case that in some contexts, you can't really change too much. And then uh, companies really have to look for other suppliers to reduce their impact. That's often in the dairy sector, where we have in the animal product sector, where based on the context, you just can't change the whole system. Because if you don't have grazing animals, if it's not common in a country or in a region, then of course, you can't just shift to grazing uh, animal production. And you see there are sometimes some limitations. Companies have to better understand the context of the farm. That's often the area where I feel they have the least information, which to me is the most important to really understand where we can reduce emissions. Let's take the example of the dairy sector a little bit further then. If you were operating in the sector, what are the key steps that you should be doing to achieve a more climate positive approach? I think it's really about how we work with the natural ecosystem in a better way. Well, animals, for example, cows, as ruminants, they use to eat grass and not concentrated feed, soybeans, etc. If we are able to integrate them in a way that it reflects natural ecosystem. So, for example, we don't have just monocrops, but we have a crop rotation with, for example, two to three years of grassland, and then you can just pasture the animal. And that's something which really improves not only the soil, it improves also the quality of the milk. For example, omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids. There is a difference if it's grass-fed, pastured production, or if it's production in a building without too much of natural grazing area. I think in the dairy sector, the companies, they understood, well, we have to shift to a better system. And it's not only about adding something to the feed so that we reduce methane emissions. Again, it's the whole system approach that you start with the breeding type, with the quality of the breed, with the longevity, because if you can just have one lactation more per animal, that reduces the footprint by 16%. So if you have a longer lifetime of the animal, that's a huge impact, but that requires not only that you change the breed, but also the feeding system. It's about manual handling. And it's really, really to work with farmers because farmers at the end, they need to live from the income. And so it's not only about changing a system, but also how to change in a way that it's more sustainable also on the economic side. It's interesting that the answers to many of these issues, and, and as you're discussing just now, it involve almost moving back to a more mixed farming approach rather than the sort of massive dairy farms or a massive single crop arable farms. It's, I mean, we're kind of a, a more mixed approach. How do you think that the sector can be best encouraged to go back down that route? And secondly, how would you suggest that concerns around yields can be best addressed? I think it's not only about going back, but going back in a smart way that we basically combine ancient knowledge that helped our grandfathers to survive with modern technology. So for example, in grazing, there is good technology to really understand what's the best moment to let the animals graze a certain area. So with remote sensing, with technology, we can increase also productivity. And what's interesting, you don't have a low yield per hectare, but you can really have high yield per hectare at the end if you optimize the application of technology, but also if you optimize soil. And it all starts with healthy soil. I think we can't just increase production if we don't increase fertility of the soil. And that has to do with organic matter. That has to do with diversity. And that has to do how we understand soil life. And there is good technology around that helps us to better assess the health of the soil and tend to improve over time. But it's a marathon. It's not the sprint. It takes time to improve soil health. But to invest in that, 
that increases resilience, that increases water holding capacity. And at the end, you have higher yields with lower input. And that's nice thing. But the problem is that you can't do it just from top down. You need to work with the farmers. You need to be able to convince them they need to see it in their neighborhood. It's a complex process to make it happen. And we have the science, we have technology, we have it available, but we need support for farmers. There always seem to be, you know, we're talking about support for farmers and for everything else in the agriculture sector. There always are loads of buzz phrases and jargon flying around. Climate positive being one, generative agriculture is another. Do you think there's a danger sometimes that we get caught up a bit in the language and lose sight of the actual hard work that's required? It's good that everybody now talks about regenerative agriculture. It's a bit challenging because there is limited understanding what it really is. I'm, besides work for Qantas, I'm also the president of the Swiss Association for Regenerative Agriculture. And it's quite interesting, the reaction of people. Most people, they just don't have an understanding of this term. But if we explain, well, it's about better soil, it's about soil covering, about diversity, integrating animals, uh, keeping living roots in soil, then people think, well, that makes sense. That's logical. It's interesting that regenerative agriculture is now somehow a mainstream topic, but not at the farm level. If we go to the farm level, there is limited understanding and we have just some pioneers doing it really in a systematic way and not just applying a certain practice like agroforestry, like no-till, like integrating animals, but to see it as a whole system approach when you work with the whole ecosystem and you improve it over time. That's regenerative agriculture. It's more outcome-based. It's not process-based like organic in the organic sector. It's more about compliance with regulations. And of course, you get rid of fertilizer, or chemical fertilizer, or chemical pesticides, but it doesn't mean that you improve soil health at the end. So regenerative agriculture, if we talk about soil health, improving soil health, and working in a way that is in line with nature and not against nature, then of course, that's a huge step forward. The advantage is that it's not defined, it's an open access system, so to say, and every farmer, every producer can select what's the best approach. But the challenging piece is we don't really have a lot of research. We don't really have a lot of experience. It's like training without a trainer. Farmers who start to do regenerative agriculture, they have a certain risk of failure. But the most important is, of course, to fail forward and to learn from your failure and to improve. But not every farm is able and willing to do that. So there needs to be more support from research, from education. There needs to be coaching and extension services that understand regenerative agriculture. It's really also quite challenging because in my discussions, there is always the challenge, well, what's the difference between regenerative and organic? What's the difference between regenerative and agroecology? And I have to say, in principle, there is not a big difference that are children of the same family. It's about how to work with the ecosystem and how to improve over time. That depends very much on context. I mean, in some contexts, it's just ridiculous to talk about agroforestry. In other, it's the best and perfect way to apply regenerative agriculture in practice. As you say, so much of the Regen Agri debate involves thinking about the ancient knowledge that you mentioned. And it does seem logical to be thinking about in terms of soil health and all these issues that have kind of been left aside in the push towards ever more intensive agriculture. Something else that everyone's talking about at the moment, of course, is the path to net zero emissions. Thinking in terms of the food and agriculture sector then, how close can the sector get to net zero with existing technology and practices? And what more, if anything, is required? Yeah, I think in the food sector, it's an opportunity if we can sequester carbon in soil and just increase the soil organic matter content. In theory, it sounds very logical. In practice, it's very complicated to increase 
uh, soil organic matter because then you need to bring in soil uh, organic matter on the soil. You need to reduce tillage and, of course, increase diversification. It's possible to reduce the carbon footprint by about 20 to 30 percent if we really are able to massively increase soil organic matter. But it's not a solution just to get to net zero. I think it's important to understand that if you want to get to net zero, that takes more. It takes more technology, more uh, sophisticated technology in, in terms of precision agriculture, etc. And for example, there needs to be much more awareness about things like biochar, how we can use biochar as a way to store carbon in soil, what's the way to do it. And I think it's also important how we can really reduce inputs in agriculture, especially, uh, let's say, nitrogen fertilizer. And so it has also to do with a certain level of circularity of nutrients of waste, which is not waste, but resources that are not well used. And if we can manage to use organic resources much better and recycle it so that it has a benefit to the soil, then, of course, we can reduce overall emissions. But I think it will be at 20 to 30 percent of the total emissions and not more if we really sequester carbon with best practices in soil. How will the sector get beyond the 30 percent then? How will it get towards 50 percent, 75 percent? Is it simply this technology doesn't exist yet or is it just continual improvements in what we've got? There's no way around that we have to work with nature to, to get to net zero. And we need to be much smarter how we can introduce some crops that really sequester massive amounts of carbon. And one crop which is interesting is, for example, hemp. If we have hemp, it really sequesters a lot of carbon in the plants. But then the condition is that we have some use for this hemp that is not just burned or just composted so that it is stored somewhere. And the same with timber. If we are able to replace concrete with timber, at a higher level, then of course we store carbon. And that are ways we need to combine agriculture with other sectors, with the, the forestry sector and with the apparel sector, for example. If we have hemp, we could produce uh, hemp seeds, for example, but in fact also textiles and other products. I mean, hemp is a wonderful plant. It has just a bad image because of some issues with drugs, but in fact, it would be a wonderful crop to improve soil health, to increase soil carbon storage, and to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. I think it's not really about sophisticated new technologies. It's really about maximizing what we already know and making it manageable at the farm level so that the farmer has enough support to do it in a very effective way. And that's where I see a lot of challenges because we don't really have too much of a state-owned or supported farmer training system anymore. I mean, most consulting services are privatized and they have to look for an income and they just can't roll out programs that make sense to the client, but not much sense from an economic perspective. Well, it's certainly interesting and exciting to think of all the different things that are going to happen potentially along the road to net zero. There's a lot of hard work to do, clearly, but it's interesting to hear that there are so many little individual things that can make a contribution towards getting towards net zero. And it'll be exciting to see what new technologies develop. But for now, Daniel from Qantas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts and to take advantage of the discounts for the plastic conference coming up in the autumn. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.